Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We've got a great show lined up for you today, including guest Bob Levy. He's the chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll continue our discussion about the subversion of the Constitution under the modern uh, Supreme Court. Andrew Jopp is a professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andrew will be giving us commentary as well. It is March the 2nd, and on this day in 1776, in advance of the Continental Army's occupation of Dorchester Heights, Massachusetts, General George Washington ordered American artillery forces to begin bombarding Boston from their positions at Lechmere Point, northwest of the city center on this day in 1776. Now, of course, uh, the reason he was sending bombing <clears throat> uh, and sending forces into Boston because it was uh, occupied by the British. After two straight days of bombardment, American Brigadier General Thomas John Thomas slipped 2,000 troops, cannons, and artillery into positions just south of Boston. And the 56 cannon involved in the move were taken at Ticonderoga, New York, by Lieutenant Colonel Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen with his Green uh, Mountain Boys, which had been there transported to Boston by Colonel uh, of Artillery Henry Knox the previous winter. By March the 5th, 1776, the Continental Army had artillery troops in position around Boston, including the elevated position at Dorchester Heights overlooking the city. British General William Howe realized Boston was indefensible to the American positions and decided on March the 7th, 1776, to leave the city. Ten days later, on March the 17th, 1776, the eight-year British occupation of Boston ended when the British troops evacuated the city and sailed to the safety of Halifax, Nova Scotia. The victory at Boston resulted in John Thomas' promotion to Major General. Soon after, he was assigned to replace General Richard Montgomery, who was killed in action as he and Benedict Arnold attempted to take Quebec. Thomas arrived at Quebec on May the 1st and soon lost his own life. Although a physician by profession, he died of smallpox on June the 2nd as the Patriots retreated up the river from the failed siege of the city. So interesting, uh, many people don't realize there was a smallpox outbreak during the Revolutionary War, and they actually had therapeutics for it, and uh, they took it, but they lost a lot of lives due to uh, that disease, the smallpox. Interesting story. Uh, Leading to the abandonment of Boston after eight years by the British. Well, as you well know, President Joe Biden delivered his first State of the Union address to Congress. He addressed the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, said the United States had reached a new moment in the COVID-19 pandemic, and he called on Congress to pass piecemeal elements of his stalled agenda to deal with the increasing costs of Americans for Americans. Biden led with uh, Russia-Ukraine, referring to Russian President Vladimir, Vladimir Putin as a dictator and condemning Putin's attack against Ukraine as premeditated and unprovoked. He also said multiple times that the United States will stand with the people of Ukraine and vowed to continue to sending aid to the country in, in addition to the $1 billion the United States has already sent in direct assistance. <clears throat> Biden also announced in the speech that the United States would be cutting off its airspace to all Russian flights. This comes in addition to sanctions already imposed by the United States and its allies against Russian financial systems, as well as individual Russian oligarchs and steps taken to cut off exports to the country. Uh, When the history of this era is written, Putin's war in Ukraine will have left Russia weaker and the rest of the world stronger, Biden said. Biden also showed a softening rhetoric as it relates to the spread of COVID-19. In December, his administration promised that he would not Those who would not have been vaccinated against the virus would experience a winter of severe illness and death. (laughs) What? But but that makes me laugh. But on Tuesday, I said the country is moving back safely to a more normal routine. 
We've reached a new moment in the fight against COVID-19, where severe cases are down to a level not seen since July of last year, he said. The declaration comes a few days after the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, realized new guidance relaxing its recommendation on mask wearing. Congress also moved to drop its mask requirements just days before the State of the Union. A lot of science behind that. And while uh, touting the passage of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan meant to be address hardship for the pandemic, Biden also announced a new chief prosecutor for pandemic fraud. Now, this got me excited until I read what, read what he's going to do under the Department of Justice meant to prosecute those who stole the billions of those relief funds through fraud. <clears throat> would be also would appreciate investigating all the lies that have been perpetrated to continue this hoax. Biden also the country's rising inflation rate, which had reached a 40-year high of 7.75%. I get it, Biden said. That's why my top priority is getting prices under control. The, uh, the president went on to attribute the rising cost to disruptions related to the pandemic, singling out supply chain issues related to the semiconductors that drove up the cost for automobiles. He said nothing about uh, his actions that led to the increase of energy because of cutting off the XL pipeline and other <laughs> closing down uh, drilling and, and uh, all the things that he's done to increase the price of energy. He then called for Congress to pass measures that were included in the Build Back Better agenda, a massive social spending package that ultimately failed to pass through Congress. While the package as a whole failed, Biden is still pushing for his plan to reduce drug prices, reduce the cost of child care, provide tax incentives for households that are mostly energy inefficient. Biden also made a call to increase domestic manufacturing, touting recent private sector investments in tech manufacturing, and calling on Congress to pass the $250 billion partisan innovation bill, bipartisan innovation bill. Lower your costs, not your wages. Make your cars and semiconductors in America. More infrastructure and innovation in America. More goods moving faster and cheaper in America. More jobs where you can earn a good living in America. And instead of relying on foreign supply chains, let's make it in America, he said. I don't think he really understands that. But nevertheless, Biden tried to downplay his plummeting approval, but instead offered a speech riddled with falsehoods and contradictions. Here's just a couple of examples. Biden told Americans, I'll be honest with you, as I've always promised. <laughs> that was the biggest lie. Biden repeated the popular lie that former President Donald Trump's tax cuts helped only the rich, even though they actually increased worker earnings and opened up job opportunities across the board. And believe me, the American people know it. Biden touted the rising job record. His job, U.S. job record is one of the highest of the first year in office, but failed to mention that the only reason the job rate is growing is because of the millions of people returning to work after tyrannical Bureaucrats shut down the economy for months in the name of stopping the spread of the virus. In other words, unfortunately, the speech sounded like it's full steam ahead on his current agenda. No apologies for bad decisions in the past. And uh, again, continue on with the Green New Deal and, and quite frankly, uh, initiatives and policies that just won't work. Well, the Russian invasion of Ukraine stretched into the sixth day. Satellite imagery showed a 40-mile Russian convoy menacing the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. Uh, peace talks between Ukrainian officials and officials in Belarus are set to continue after inconclusive start on Monday. Before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, U U.S. intelligence had predicted a blistering assault by Moscow that would have quickly mobilized the vast Russian air power that its military assembled in order to uh, dominate Ukraine's air skies. But the first six days have confounded those expectations, instead seen Moscow act far more delicately with its air power, so much so that the U.S. officials can't exactly explain what's driving Russia's apparent risk-averse behavior. They're not necessarily willing to take high risks with their own aircraft and, these, and their pilots, said a senior U.S. defense official. Vastly outmatched by Russian military, it's terms of raw numbers and firepower. Ukraine's own air force is still flying and its air defenses are still deemed to be viable, a fact that's baffling military experts. After the open salvo of uh, war on February the 24th, 
Analysts expected the Russian military to start its immediately destroy Ukraine's air force and air defenses. Instead, Ukraine Air Force fighter jets are still carrying out low-level defensive counter air and counterattack sorties. Russia is still uh, f- flying through contested airspace. Ukrainian troops with surface-to-air rockets are able to threaten Russian aircraft and uh, create risk to uh, Russian pilots uh, trying to support ground forces. So interesting. Uh, this uh, here we are you know, going into the second week or the second week of the uh, conflict, and uh, it looks like that forty-mile convoy is stalled. It could be because of lack of supplies. The supply chain is just not there to support these uh, these troops. And apparently the morale of the uh, Russian invaders is quite low. They are, I heard that they were called up to go for some sort of a military exercise and instead ended up on the front lines in the Ukraine. Hmm. Now, here's another thumb in the eye to Putin from uh, European Parliament. European Parliament voted Tuesday to advance Ukraine's application for membership in the Ukrainian, uh, European Union. Zelensky, of course, made an emergency appeal to the body amid Russia's ongoing invasion. An overwhelming majority of European Parliament representatives voted to accept Ukraine, 637 to 13, and 26 abstaining. However, it's going to take a while. It's going to, it's not going to be fast-tracked, and uh, these applications take a long while in order to be approved. So it may be symbol, uh, symbolic rather than important and effective. But nevertheless, uh, thumbing their nose at Putin, the European Union. And uh, by the way, about 100 diplomats walked out of the UN Human Rights Council during the Russian foreign minister's speech in which he accused Ukraine of looking to acquire nuclear weapons. Meanwhile, Ukrainian President Zelensky got a standing ovation after his speech in the European Parliament where he urged that they grant Ukraine membership into the EU. Meanwhile, Russia said it's ready to resume talks with the Ukrainians today. Let's hope that goes well. And then finally in this segment, yesterday, sadly, the uh, League and Players Union for Major League Baseball failed to agree on a new collective bargaining agreement. The two have been on the outs for a while, and while the uh, Players Union pushing for a better payment structure, back in December, the league locked out the players from playing and getting paid. An opening day was set to kick off on March 31st, but now... The regular season, at least the ter- first two series of the regular season, have been canceled. Uh, players could lose a collective $20.5 million in salary for each day the, sal- the season is canceled. That's a lot of tamales. Talk about a diamond in the rough. We'll see how this all plays out, but uh, it's unfortunate. I always look forward to Major League Baseball, especially the intrigue during the offseason. Now all canceled. And, uh, you know, the old saying... When we work together, there's plenty for everybody. But when somebody gets greedy, there's not enough for anyone. And I think that's what we're seeing right now. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabee's.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. 
Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252 252- 4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. Bob's an author. He's a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government, C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you, Bob. So uh, we started our discussion about the evidence in place that uh, demonstrates how the Supreme Court decisions since the New Deal, since the, in, our, in the modern era, have somewhat uh, served to to uh, subvert the Constitution. And let's pick up our conversation on the Commerce Clause. So what has the court said about limits on the commerce power? Well, after the case, uh, Wickard v. Filburn, that we discussed last week, the, the framework was that uh, the commerce power would cover economic acts that in the aggregate had a substantial impact on interstate commerce. And by economic acts, it meant everything from, from growing, mining, manufacturing, buying, selling, and distributing, and consuming. So not just commerce, which is, which is buying and selling, but all of those other things as well. Mm. Well, 43 years later, um, in 1995, uh, the court was asked to approve another, uh, even larger, expansion of the Commerce Clause. And the question was, was whether the power to, to regulate commerce could conceivably cover a non economic act. That is an act that doesn't involve growing, mining, manufacturing, etc. The case was United States versus Lopez, and the court said no, a federal law criminalizing merely possessing a gun near a school, clearly a non-economic act, uh, the court said that federal law could not be justified uh, under the Commerce Clause. So that Lopez case, along with Wickard and <clears throat> yield the modern framework for interpreting the Commerce Clause. Congress can regulate commerce, that is the exchange of products, across state lines. Congress can also regulate non-commerce as long as they're economic acts that have a substantial effect on commerce, such as growing and consuming wheat uh, in Wickard v. Filburn. But Congress may not regulate non-economic acts like merely possessing a gun uh, in Lopez. So within that framework, uh, the commerce power is still huge, and I would argue contrary to the original understanding of the framers. You know, if the Commerce Clause authorizes regulation of any activity with a substantial effect on interstate commerce, then why do the framers uh, add into the Constitution the the ability of Congress to to, – separate to regulate the value of money and to establish rules of bankruptcy both of those are indisputably have an effect on on congress so then we had this individual mandate in obamacare which went even further yeah. it went beyond commerce it went beyond the economic acts to regulate things that were not acts at all 
and that is the refusal to purchase health insurance. So now, given that the court drew another line in the sand, uh, the the Commerce Clause will not cover non-acts. It will cover all economic acts, but not non-acts. Mm. That's a good thing. It is a good thing. So what's your view about the Obamacare theory of the uh, Commerce uh, Power and co- Commerce Clause? Well, you know, essentially this insurance mandate was regulatory bootstrapping of the worst sort. Uh, Congress would force you to engage in commerce by buying health insurance and then proclaim that you can be regulated because you're engaged in commerce. See, you know, if Congress could do that, it could do pretty much whatever it wanted to do. And my view, now confirmed by the Supreme Court, even if Congress can regulate Filburn's wheat production, that does not mean that Congress can require me to purchase bread for my local grocer in order to subsidize the wheat growers. And it can't require you to purchase health and coverage to subsidize insurance companies so they can afford to cover pre-existing conditions. So the litmus test now is economic activity. A mental decision not to buy a product is not an economic act. It's no different than a decision not to work. Uh, neither decision can be regulated simply because the non-act, if it were converted into a real act, might affect interstate commerce. So the subject matter has to be both economic and affect interstate commerce and must involve uh, activity. Uh, If a decision not to buy health insurance were an economic act that government could ban, then, you know, ditto for for other so-called acts, uh, many of which are health-related, like can government require us to join a gym, you know, or to to exercise at home or to join – Weight watchers, uh, plainly, that can't be the state yeah. of our law. Yeah, you're not eating enough broccoli, citizens. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> unbelievable. Well, so how do you explain the Roberts opinion in the Obamacare case? Well, it came as a complete, complete surprise to everybody. Uh, they, you know, from the beginning, there were two primary questions, uh, whether Obamacare would survive and whether there was any remaining limits to the federal power. And legal scholars, I think, across Uh, the ideological spectrum expected either one of two outcomes. Either Obamacare would be upheld, and that would be a harbinger of unbounded federal power, or Obamacare would be invalidated because the court had reined in federal power. But instead, Roberts did what nobody anticipated. He saved Obamacare uh, while he, at the same time, established limits on the exercise of the Commerce Clause. So the the opinion was a, a masterpiece of political compromise. He gave something to everybody. It suggests that Roberts was intent on consensus building and ensuring that the court didn't have an overtly political or ideological cast. So, you know, those motives are not inherently bad unless, as in this case, mm-hmm. uh, they had they led to a legal analysis uh, that really condones an unconstitutional law. So no commerce clause for Obamacare, but as Robert said, it was okay to use the taxing power to justify the law. I must admit, thinking back, I just remember how deflated I felt after hearing hit the final decision on this. I was just really disgusted. On balance, what, was Robert's opinion net plus or net minus for the Constitution? Well, you know, our most I think our most fundamental principles were at stake. We, we limit government power so people can live their lives the way they want. So this wasn't just an academic exercise to map, you know, the, the precise contours of the Commerce Clause and the taxing power. That would be a worthy uh, goal, but it's just a means to achieve the real goal, and that is to maximize human freedom. That's why we allow government to exist. And that's why Robert's Obamacare opinion, as skillful as it was, ultimately, I think, was a failure. Yeah. Because once again, the, found, the court found a way to expand the reach of the federal government uh, at the expense of individual liberty. A I'm, very bad outcome. Yeah, I mean, uh, do you feel more free now that that decision's in place and uh, your ability to buy insurance <laughs> to get health care? Right. Well, I just don't. Right. Agreed 100%. Yeah. Bob Levy, again, chairman of the Cato Institute, I encourage you to visit the very robust and informative website, 
cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, always appreciate your most informed commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Andrew Joppa. He's professor and author of Josephus of Oz. I know Andy watched the uh, State of the Union address last night. Looking forward to his comments. By the way, full, full disclosure, I didn't. I uh, <laughs> just uh, had to go to bed. It was too late, but nevertheless. So, so we'll find out what is on Andy's mind. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. Great play going on right now, and you can get tickets by visiting the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. We have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Andy. Hey, uh, did you stay up and watch the speech last night? I watched half of it, and I recorded it and got up early this morning and finished it, including the uh, Republican rebuttal. So uh, I did invest some, some time in it. I, I found nothing that was uh, startling. I, I anticipated uh, Biden taking claim for uh, almost any positive benefit that uh, impacted on America, although some were distortions, obviously. He indicated the, uh, the, the, the COVID process has been controlled, although, you know, the death rate is still very high. And I, I don't want to go back into the pandemic phase of this, but, you know, the death rate, the, the hospitalization rate is down, but the, the death rate is, 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 uh, is still very high. Bob. Uh, I'll go back into that in a second. I, I did want to, as I mentioned to you, talk for your audience purpose more so than anything else uh, about my historical invar- involvement with uh, nuclear uh, potentials. And uh, right now that is on the table. I think we are probably closer to a, uh, a potential. You know, let, let me describe what a closer to a potential is. If nuclear war uh, has a potential normally of one chance in a million, I think it has gone down to one chance in a thousand. Now, mm-hmm. that doesn't make it likely. It doesn't make it probable. Mm-hmm. But I think we have a dramatically enhanced uh, potentiality of nuclear exchange. It is still not likely by any measurement, but I think we have dropped that from one in a million, my estimate, of course, uh, to around one in a thousand. Uh, in 1966, now this goes back a ways, but the same 
uh, the same basic issues pertain. Uh, I was uh, working in 8th Air Force Command Post in Amherst, Massachusetts. Uh, I worked in, in a contiguous office with uh, General William Kiefer, at least when he came in in, in February of 1957. 1960, I'm sorry. Um, obviously, the whole potential of SAC was a deterrent. Strategic Air Command was a deterrent. Uh, it was built on the concept of mutually assured destruction. That is, it was a presumption of rationality that both sides or all sides, let's say in the potential of nuclear exchange, would, when push came to shove, would let their, in, their, their personal interest, their national interest, uh, prevent them from going to nuclear war. Uh, in 1967, we ran an exercise, I'm sorry, that was late 66, we ran an exercise called Operation High Heels. Uh, for your audience purpose, just to get an idea of how SAC would prepare, uh, in Operation High Heels, we in fact uh, anticipated a nuclear attack from almost every country on the planet. Hmm. Uh, it, this was built on presumptions of uh, the wholesale movement of nuclear weapons during war and so forth. But Operation High Heels uh, expanded the potential from the Soviet Union to a potential of anyone possibly launching a nuclear attack against the United States. Uh, and just one, uh, one more thought, a couple more thoughts on this. Um, I became somewhat friendly, uh, that's probably too strong a term, uh, with General Kiefer as he took over 8th Air Force uh, in, 19, in February of 1967. A really interesting man, Bob. He uh, indicated to me that if SAC, Strategic Air Command, actually had to do what we were charged with doing, we had failed. Uh, this was very uh, encouraging and as a young man enlightening to me that General Kiefer saw our entire purpose as being a deterrent force, uh, not as a force that would uh, exist to strike back. That's what, we, what he would do and he, he made no, no bones about it. If he had to attack in retaliation, he would. But if we had to, he said we had failed. We had hmm. absolutely failed. So, I mean, that was my experience. One more just thing that might be interesting for your audience. The United States maintains a, an airborne flying command post, which has all the power and authority of the president of the United States. Uh, it is in the air 24-7, 365. It has all of the communication links that would uh, be a, a existing on a, on a ground-based configuration, uh, and it is there. At that point, it was called uh, um, uh, Looking Glass. I, I don't know if it still is at this point, but Looking Glass was the United States Air Airborne command post always in the air. Hmm. Uh, we also maintained what was called the Thule monitor aircraft, a B-52, constantly over Thule, Greenland, monitoring all the potentialities of launched ICBMs. And my job, one of them was the the monitoring of the Thule the, the Thule aircraft, the B-52 that was constantly circling uh, Thule, Greenland. So uh, that's just a, a brief and very quick synopsis of. Uh, of uh, the United States uh, model at that point, and I'm sure it's still very close to that, for mutually assured destruction. The one thing that's in place right now that really worries me as it pertains to nuclear exchange is the painting of, uh, of Putin as being a veritable madman, that he is insane, that he's a psychopath, that he's mm -hmm. crazy. Mm -hmm. um, these are very dangerous ways to describe Putin. And I'm sure he sees... Uh, President Biden in the same model. So here we have the two leaders of the uh, greatest nuclear powers in the world, uh, but both being portrayed by the opposite side as being veritable madmen. This is an extremely dangerous configuration, Bob, because it is the presumption of rationality that drove the entire process of mutually ensured destruction. Once that rationality is out of the mix, uh, then uh, God knows what kind of preemptive preemptive actions might be taken. So uh, that that's that's all I'll offer your audience. But I and I hope that was of, of some interest. Well, it's it's really that. really fascinating, and what an experience for you. And it's also a nice reminder that in fact there are things going on right now that are protecting us. Uh, from mutual destruction, a little gasoline on the fire right now would be Iran, Iran uh, getting its new nuclear missiles uh, and uh, nuclear capability. And uh, see, they're not a rational player. Their whole uh, their whole existence based on an ideology that it would basically like to uh, eradicate uh, all the uh, uh, 
all the what's the not the rebels i'm thinking of the uh, infidels out of the yes. universe so uh you know to me that it it just gets worse from here well i, I wasn't going to talk much about iran but i think as you're as you're bringing it up i think we have to remember and it's not it's not uh, uh, cited very often at this point, but Iran is, is dominated by Twelvers. It's a uh, Islamic Shia, uh, a Shia sect uh, that, in fact, believes that uh, Armageddon will be, in fact, prompted uh, by by warfare, uh, and that the the intent of the Armageddon is to uh, destroy all infidel life and, if necessary, Muslim life on the planet and replace it with a few uh, remaining Muslim leaders. The Twelvers are are fanatics. Um, they have been dominating Ira Iranian policy since uh, since the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini came back from uh, from Paris, uh, and I think that is a very dangerous configuration when they get their nuclear weapons. And make no doubt about it, Bob. If they don't have them now, and they might, uh, they will have them in the in the somewhat immediate future. Bob. Yeah, oh, I agree with that. So uh, let's get back to the. Uh, thank you for that information, though, Andy. I found it very interesting. Let's get back to the State of the Union address. Uh, you watched it, and I think our politics are similar, very close. Uh, I just wondered if you saw anything encouraging, any good news coming out of uh, the speech. Gosh, I, I would like to do that, Bob. <laughs> um, no, it's the you know, answer. <laughs> I was, I'll tell you what I was hoping for and, and didn't see. Certainly okay. the reestablishing of the uh, the American uh, energy program that was uh, so prolific under, under President Trump. I saw none of that. Uh, Biden uh, opened up the oil reserves. I think he, he opened up 30 million uh, barrels of oil reserve. And, of course, at 20 million barrels a day being consumed, that's a day and a half uh, of use. So, so I, I, I saw nothing in that. His encouraging words. It's what seemed incredibly simplistic was the fact that, you know, he said uh, and it made it sound so profound that uh, inflation uh, can be controlled only by lowering costs. Well, sure, that seems to be seems to be quite obvious. The question is, uh, is how does that how was that done? Mm -hmm. What is the role the American government has played in generating inflation with with hyper spending, uh, with uh, an increase in the in the money supply, with the dramatic reduction in our uh, in our contribution to the uh, to the energy problems of the world? Certainly that is has driven inflation. Uh, if we look at the uh, the supply chain problems, uh, uh, he alluded to that, but that did not make it, it a major issue. Um, he also indicated that we have to bring manufacturing back to to America as a way of controlling inflation. Now, you know, I am all for uh, American production and America first in these areas, but let's not confuse that yeah. with lowering the inflation rate. If we bring all of the capabilities of, of production back into the United States, the, 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 the general impact on inflation will be dramatic. If we look at the products that are being produced in China and Mexico at because of low cost labor at a, uh, a fraction of what they're uh, uh, costing in America to produce, uh, and those products are all brought, brought back, uh, back into America, the impact on inflation will be uh, dramatic, as I indicated. And I'm not saying I'm against it, Bob. No, of I'm course not. Well, that you know, cannot be a source of, of controlling inflation. You know, one of the ways to do that, of course, is to lower taxes and to uh, uh, reduce uh, regulations here in the United States that make it an attractive place to do business. Did he say anything about that? <laughs> he didn't say anything about that, I'm sure. He wants to increase it. In taxes, he no, it, it is what he didn't say, and it, these are hard to comment on because these are my, uh, I guess, optimistic uh, views that I'm looking. I was looking for. Yeah. I was looking for a higher degree of rationality, and uh, you know, I'm going to get to Ukraine in a second, and you know. Uh, I, I thought his comments uh, opening up the uh, the State of the Union with comments about Ukraine. I, I you know, I, I admire the Ukrainian military. So let me let me just make that obvious. The, the heroism of that military has been been outstanding. Right. But to open it up with Ukraine as compared to America, uh, I thought that was just something that that didn't sit well with me. I think we had to hear about America uh, by by definition. It's the State of the Union, not the State of Ukraine, and. I I thought he, he felt he would gain uh, strength by starting out with Ukraine as compared to the United States. And I found that to be a, uh, a deficiency of his general approach. Uh, I found his, his presentation to be to have the, the transitional process w was limited. Uh, I thought it lacked any kind of a, 
of enthusiasm, which at that hour of the night for Joe Biden was certainly expected, the lack of enthusiasm. Um, so I was looking for more. I was looking for something that would be uh, inspiring to America, something that would uh, give us a better look at, uh, at the future. And, and I really found none of that. So as you asked me, Bob, what I found optimistic in it, I'm, I'm sorry, I, yeah. I did not find anything at this point that, to fit that bill. Was, was there anything there where you took where some accountability where you said, look, I realize that the decisions we've made, for example, on reducing energy supply here in the United States and, and on and on, we can talk, have had an impact on the quality of your lives and we're going to do something to, to fix that. Uh, are, you, are you asking if he said anything about that? Yeah. No, no, I, I heard nothing. And I was I was pretty attentive. Yeah. Uh, all, of course, when I was watching it at quarter to five this morning, I might have missed some detail, but <laughs> yeah, no, no. He, he made no no attempt to to weave in his uh, inappropriate, unnecessary reductions in our uh, in our oil production process into the uh, the process of inflation or. Uh, directly contributing to the uh, ability of, of Putin to launch war in Ukraine. Uh, the funding of that, to the largest extent, has come as a result of dramatically increased increased Russian revenues uh, as the as an advent of uh, re reduced American production and higher per barrel cost, which benefited Russia dramatically and still is at this point, Bob. Yeah, a little litmus test on the, the impact of the president's speech and the anticipation of it. But my understanding uh, is that uh, the the chamber emptied pretty quickly after his speech. And uh, by comparison, juxtaposition to, for example, Trump's, where the place was packed. Uh, how do you measure the enthusiasm and the support for the speech that he gave? Um, it was obligatory. Uh, you, you could feel that it was going to happen at certain at certain moments. And there were certain phrases that always draw uh, draw applause or you know, nonpartisan applause, you yep, know, yep. Uh, supporting statements for the American democracy and, uh, and America's uh, commitment to freedom. Those are always remarks that are going to uh, draw a big rounds of applause. Uh, I thought the most serious um, negative response was when he cited the Trump tax reduction as only benefiting the upper 1%. An obvious lie, Bob. I mean, that has been well documented as being a tax cut uh, that affected the middle class in a positive way, more so than any other segment of the American demographic. Uh, so when that was offered, that was immediately immediately uh, booed or other negative noises were made uh, in rejection of it. So, um, you know, I still have to get back and, and do some uh, fact checking and, and see what the fact checkers are doing with his, his presentation. But uh, I, I was hoping for more and uh, not perhaps not expecting, but, but hoping for more from the speech. Club. You know, I, I look forward to getting the uh, demographics, find out exactly how the speech was accepted on the uh, the viewership on national television, for example, and on cable TV, it would be interesting to see if people actually tuned in and uh, watched the speech. Andy, I need to take a little break here. I need to give our advertisers an opportunity to tell their great stories and uh, want to continue the conversation. Can you stick around? I have nothing better to do with my time, Bob. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Good for discussion. more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I agree. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth uh, Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. 
For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, a limited government, and the rule of law. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be back with you, Bob. Thank you, Andy. So let's move to uh, Ukraine uh, and uh you just uh, there are so many surprises of what's going on. What are your thoughts? Um, let me just mention I, I've had a, a process of introducing the good news of today. Then good news is I found it today, Bob, looking for it was the Texas primaries where all of the Trump endorsed candidates won or are leading substantially at this point. I think the number I heard last was uh, 32 candidates endorsed by Trump in the Texas primaries uh, have all won or are leading. So I, yeah. I think that, uh, that that stands us uh, in good stead, at least for Texas, uh, going into the future, whether it translates into success in the general elections, always waits to be seen. But the Trump endorsement seems to still have powerful, powerful significance in the Republican Party. Uh, quick, Just a quick word on Katarina. On Tanji Brown uh, Jackson, um, although there are some problems with her record, particularly on immigration, um, she would be normally uh, approved and I believe will be approved or nomination approved. Uh, I think the problem is with the with the process. Once uh, Biden eliminated uh, 94, 95 point six percent of the American people, that is all the American people who are not African-American women. Um, it was an unconstitutional positioning. You're not, he could not do that. Now, he could have handled this in a lot of other ways mm-hmm. that would have uh, certainly resulted in Katanji Brown-Jackson uh, getting the Supreme Court uh, nomination and support. Uh, but his it was his process. Uh, uh, Clyburn uh, pushing Biden to make that uh, position manifest, uh, I think, uh, will serve her. Uh, in not good stead, it will make her always seem to be an affirmative action uh, appointment. And that is a shame for her. Uh, and it certainly is, is is not something that serves the American democracy well, that he is functioning essentially with that remark outside the Constitution. Yeah, no, no. So I, I'll, I'll move into, into um and to Ukraine, you have any comments about that, Bob? No, I, I do. Just, uh, just I support your thoughts uh, 100%. In fact, it would have been interesting if he had said, you know, typically we choose uh, a male uh, jurist going into these situations. Uh, well, I'm going to take a close look at the entire field and, and pick the very best candidate. And then announce that she had been actually his selection, I think would have been a lot more powerful. I, I absolutely agree. And again, I, I don't have any dramatic problems with uh, with Jackson uh, by all uh, uh, personal uh, assessments of her. She, she seems to be an intelligent, uh, engaging woman, uh, seems to have a, a, a quality understanding of the law. And again, there are some some minor problems that Breitbart has pointed out with her background, but uh, not significant enough to warrant uh, a rejection of her nomination. So as you as you're supporting, the point I made is the it's the process that Biden uh, created that I think that does exactly not stand right. him nor her or America in, in good stead. OK, Ukraine. Um, gosh, there there is so much to be said. Um, again, let me just start out with the fact that there's nothing that I'm going to say that in any way will disparage the incredible level of heroism being shown uh, by the Ukrainian people, by right. the Ukrainian military. Uh, but I would like to try to bring this into a uh, I'm going to describe it as a better focus. And so uh, that is my attempt not to diminish Ukraine's heroism, but to try to get us away from the fog of war, the fog of war being the, the hyperbolic statements that always come out in these type of situations. Well, and how so, about the how about the jingoism and the simplicity of, of making things so simple? Biden or Putin bad. 
uh, Zelensky good. I mean, uh, it's not that that's not the case, but the point is it's a lot more complicated than that. And I appreciate uh, your delving into this. Well, it's it dramatically more complicated. I mean, Zelensky is uh, is there and gave, uh, there's, there's no doubt that his being there is a, is a heroic act. I, I, I think that point could be made. Uh, but whether or not he is a truly independent president or is a, uh, a figurehead of the uh, WEF, the World Economic Forum, uh, who put him into power, the, dis, the displacing a, a pro-Russian candidate in uh, 2014, I lose track, but 2014 uh, can be debated. Mm-hmm. If we ask questions, sometimes questions can bring things into a, a better focus. If if we look at the Russian in, in, in incursion, invasion, let's not be modifying my words, invasion of Ukraine, is there a dramatic difference between that and our invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan? Now, certainly we Americans would make a, a, a dramatic point that in terms of both of those uh, invasions, both Iraq and Afghanistan, that uh, they served American interests and we were attacking uh, forces that were obviously alien to democracy and alien to freedom. Yes, 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 and yes. Uh, in other words, we're saying that those things served a very legitimate high-level value system of the United States. To ignore that Putin may be functioning in that same model based on his perceptions, I think uh, takes us away from a, uh, a solution, takes us away from a, a more accurate understanding uh, of what is going on. If we look at the, the uh, expansion of NATO uh, since the dissolution of the Soviet Union, it was long predicted back in the early part of the 1990s that this unlimited expansion eastward would in fact put Russia into a pressured circumstance mm-hmm. that eventually they would react to. So this is not some surprise moment in time. This was long predicted and certainly the the the, the intent of, of, of Putin, he's stated it many times, was to prevent there being a, a, a NATO nation uh, contiguous with his border and if not a NATO nation then one that was uh, committed to Western uh, approaches and had Western lethal weapons. That was what he stated. Now, we've expanded that. We've expanded that to include that he is going to march into the the Baltics, the rest of the Balkans, uh, expand uh, uh, westward into many of the NATO countries. There is absolutely no proof or reason to believe that's true. But they had to get away from the rather simple cure, which was to eliminate the potential of a uh, essentially a NATO-based Ukraine uh, being contiguous with Russia. Now, again, this isn't a defense statement for Putin. The the invasion is, is, is horrible on its face. But if we look at what is really happening, it was long predicted uh, that this would yeah. happen. Uh, Putin made it uh, clear that is exactly what would happen if the, the pressure towards NATO, uh, Ukraine joining NATO, and with Biden's statements of wanting uh, to uh, support uh, Ukraine's entry into uh, into uh, NATO, that might have been the precipitating moment uh, that actually launched the invasion. I would also ask a question. The, uh, the protests in, in Moscow, for example, with the uh, pushback from the uh, from the Putin government uh, have been cited and appropriately so as being uh, autocratic and dictatorial and, and unduly harsh. But can we compare those, Bob, for example, to Trudeau's actions uh, against the truckers in Ottawa? Are those not similar events with the suppression? Are these are not similar events to what we did in the January 6th attack on the uh, on the attack on the Capitol? And again, I'm not diminishing the right. uh, the problem that is Putin-based, but I am just trying to add into the fact that uh, these are issues that that have a and you, you know, they're not quite as as simple as the world is making them out. Well, let me let me let me make this point, Andrew. Yeah, in my in my view, it's important to make these points, and and uh, and uh, notwithstanding all of your concerns about being misunderstood on this, you know, the more we the more we amplify uh, and uh, the the 
differences between Putin and Zelensky and these other issues, the more and, and try and simplify the situation, the more inaccurate our thinking can become. And we need rational players. We need people who are very thoughtful about taking a look at the total facts here to make good decisions. And my concern is, you, know, you listen to uh, some of the uh, legislators and some of the people who are making comments that, that could lead to war, you know, no-fly zone over uh, Ukraine and, and, and other thoughts like that. It's, it's very concerning. It should be. It should be to all of us that concerning. You know, if we just look at the the end result in terms of civilian deaths in uh, in both Iraq and Afghanistan since our uh, uh, incursions into those two countries, both have had two hundred thousand civilian violent deaths since our uh, introduction uh, of ourselves militarily into those nations. And I'm and again, I'm not suggesting that those incursions should not have taken place. I am just saying, and you're supporting, I think at this point, Bob, that mm. these things have to be put into their proper their proper perspective absolutely and, and right now with the demonization of putin as i pointed out before i, I heard dick morris i think yesterday a day before yesterday uh, indicating that we should not be afraid of war with russia and i'm saying to the american people yes you should be very afraid of a war with russia russia is a nation built on pride uh, and a and a deep romanticized history that is not lost on putin uh, if in fact russia is being further humiliated with with sanctions and and all the things that are being said about it uh russia will not allow themselves to lose uh i don't think they they may not win but uh, russia will do everything in their power yeah. to ensure that this is not uh, a, a humiliation for russia it's a very dangerous circumstance with neocane neocons promoting war uh with so many people advocating it with the talk about russia and this has been going on, Bob, since the since Trump uh, ran for the presidency in 2015. Uh, Putin has been demonized. Russia has been demonized. And before I lose it, uh, run out of time, beyond nuclear exchange or conventional warfare exchange, the potential threat for cyber warfare and the damage it could do to this country or any country, for that right, matter, right. is dramatic. We are in extremely dangerous times. Uh, I'm not removing Putin from that equation. He may be the major player in, in that danger. But when we are putting fuel on that fire constantly, uh, I think we are we are rolling the dice in a very dangerous manner. Well, I'll say that, uh, you know, if we're going to be getting into cyber warfare, we're actually throwing stones and we're living in a glass house. We are very vulnerable. You take a look at our energy grid. You take a look at a, just a number of factors. Literally, uh, shutting down our, our energy or our sh shutting down our uh, uh, communications could lead to total starvation of the people here in the United States. This is a very, very dangerous game. And we need to have prudent players in charge here and making good decisions. Of course, and I have very little confidence in our president right now and his ability to make good decisions. I think it was Gates that said at one time, the former Secretary of State, if I'm not mistaken, uh, and he wasn't Secretary of State, I forgot, but National Security Advisor. In any event, he said, you know, uh, Biden, you can always count on Biden to make the wrong decision or not to make a good decision. That's my concern. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a legitimate concern, Bob. The uh, if we if we look at the nature of the the Russian people, they are. Uh, I'm going to say they're war hardened. These are a tough people. Uh, back during my time in, in in the Strategic Air Command, Russia had shifted almost all of its production capability uh, to the eastern side of the Ural Mountains, uh, protecting them from the possibility of nuclear exchange. I would have no doubt with the vastness of Russia. And with that still that hardened facility in place east of the Urals, uh, that if there's a nuclear exchange and the, the soft American people, and I'm not blaming them for being soft, that's been part of our part of our isolation by the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Uh, but I think Russia would come out the winner in a nuclear exchange. Bob. Well, no one's a winner. But if there is somebody that will merge at all standing, it'll be Russia. Well, it, it will destroy. It'll destroy mankind, quite frankly, uh, because one thing can lead to another. It's uh, be, it's not it's not, you know, when you it, get when you get hit in the back of the it's dangerous, all, all predictable. They they talked about Putin not understanding the capacity of the uh, of the uh, uh, 
the Ukraine military uh, just three days before the invasion. I published an essay talking about that specifically, talking about where is the Ukraine military? Why is the United States seen as the uh, as the major source of response to Putin? Uh, I pointed out the capabilities of the Ukraine military. I pointed out the uh, the problems that that Putin's army would have in Kiev and and in Kharkiv, Kar- Kar- uh, and he's having those. It was very anticipated. Uh, so these were not lost on me, and certainly not lost on Putin. They make Putin sound like he's a total idiot, yeah. like he didn't have any understanding of the capability of his army or Ukraine's army. So there's this this turning Putin into a crazy idiot is a it's such a dangerous thing, Bob. I can't overstate it. Well, I'm so happy you brought these points up. So much more to talk about, Andy, but we're out of time. I, mean, I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Very thoughtful. And thank you so much for joining us. Talk to him, Bob. Thank you so much, Andy. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tomorrow, we've got great guests. Uh, Keith Flaws, the co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance, will be joining us. Marina Berkovich. I wrote a book called uh, My Life and My Dresses. So interesting. She grew up in Soviet Russia and uh, ended up coming to the United States. She will look forward to her. And she's right now the founder of the Southwest Florida Jewish Historical Society. I look forward to her thoughts. Seat Motley, the founder and president of Less Government, and Bill Barnett, the former mayor of Naples, will be joining us as well. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.